Um, my name is Dr. John Collins. I'm Executive Director of the International Drug Policy Unit at LSE. Um, I'm also a Fellow of the LSE US Centre, uh, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Illicit Economies uh, and Development at LSE Press. It's my pleasure to welcome you to what should be, we think, a very timely and, and relevant event uh, today, which is, a fact, which is a discussion on the impacts of COVID-19 on illicit markets, and indeed also the impact of illicit markets on efforts to contain COVID-19, because there is a clear overlap between the two. We have an outstanding panel today. We've got people from the United Kingdom, uh, various parts of North America and Brazil. Uh, But before I turn to our panel, I just want to say a couple of quick thank yous. Um, Firstly, I want to say thank you to Antigone, uh, Alan and the entire team at LSE Events. They've been absolutely fantastic to work with as always. Uh, Thank you to Charlotte Eaton, our, our Events and Communications Coordinator at LSE IDPU. Uh, thank you to our administrative coordinator at LSEIDPU, Sally Ann Oates, who maybe I shouldn't say, but she, she's also at home with a bad back today as well. So we, we send our thoughts to her at this time. Um, thanks also to the, our host centre, the LSE US Centre, for all of their help and support with this. So Centre Manager Ade, Professor Trubovitz, uh, Chris Gilson, Saga and Michaela. I also want to take to thank our audience for joining us from, from effectively what we think is all parts around the world. Um, and taking the time to really be part of this discussion today. And this will be an interactive discussion. This this will be something that we want to see the audience engaged with. And to begin that, I'll come to in a moment how we can increase audience engagement later. But to begin that, please do uh, feel free to tweet. So our hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSECOVID19. This online event will also be recorded uh, and will be made available as a podcast. So after, we're going to have a quick, we have five uh, presentations, and after these, these will last about five minutes each, and after these, we'll go into a Q&A. So to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Uh, questions will be submitted to myself. I will do my very best to pose as many of these as possible to the speakers and to try and ensure an engaged uh, and free-flowing discussion. Um, we, we want to ensure great diversity in, in, in people who are, who are asking questions Um, But please do let us know your name and affiliation. And we're also particularly delighted to hear from LSE students, alumni and incoming students. So if you are one, please do let us know. Um, Before I begin, I I would like to acknowledge some exceptional groups uh, at at this time. And and the first is um, that we we talk a lot about frontline service providers uh, in the current crisis, and rightly so. Um, but I'd particularly like to acknowledge um, low threshold service providers and, and harm reductionists all around the world who are right now working to people, keep people safe, healthy and alive. These groups work in extremely difficult circumstances in the best of times, uh, working with some of the most marginalized groups, some of the most stigmatized groups and, and frankly, some of the most criminalized groups in society. Uh, and, and really, this is a very difficult time for them. So while we are having this policy discussion here, our, our thoughts do go out to them. Um, I'd also like to take, take a moment to acknowledge the, the absolutely terrible event and, and indeed events uh, that have precipitated the protests in the United States and now around the world. And indeed, frankly, the terrible events that we see on a daily basis around the world. Um, rather than try to say more on this, uh, I saw uh, Patrick Gaspard, the president of Open Society Foundations, paraphrasing, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr., where he said, injustice to one is injustice to all. So with that said, I'd just like to take a very brief few moments now here that we all just take a breath and acknowledge uh, those who have lost their lives and also those who, are, who, are, who, who live but are striving to make this world a more just place.
Okay, with that said, uh, first up today, we have, we have a really outstanding panel. So first up, we have uh, Naomi Berkshine. She's Executive Director of Harm Reduction International and has more than 10 years of international experience at the intersection of harm reduction, HIV, and human rights. She's a member of the Strategic Advisory Group to the UN on HIV and Drug Use, a member of the Global Fund Technical Review Panel for Human Rights and Gender, and a member of the World Health Organization Guidelines Group on Ensuring Balance in National Policies and Controlled Substances. Following her, we have Dr. Kasia Malinowska. She's Director of the Global Drug Policy Program at the Open Society Foundations. She previously led the Open Society's International Harm Reduction Development Program, which supports the health and human rights of people who use drugs. She publishes regularly, regularly on drug policy as it relates to women, social justice, health, human rights, civil society and governance, and she co-authored Poland's first national AIDS program. Jason Eli is a senior expert at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. He is an illicit drug market and policy analyst who has researched, developed and led technical cooperation and assistance initiatives addressing illicit drugs across African and Asian geographies. Gabriel Feltran is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the Federal University of San Carlos in Brazil and currently, currently senior researcher at the Brazilian Center for Planning and Analysis. His current research looks at criminal groups and illegal markets in Brazil, focusing on collective action, marginalization, groups, and, 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 and the criminal world in Sao Paulo. And finally, we'll have Alexander Soderholm, who's a policy coordinator of the LSE International Drug Policy Unit. He's managing editor of the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development, and he's currently a PhD candidate in, this, in social policy at the LSE, with a research project titled Drugs, Livelihood and Development, the Role of Illicit Markets in Determining Development Outcomes. So, with all of those introductions out of the way, I'll hand over to our first speaker, which is Naomi Berkshine. Thank you, John. Um, I work for Harm Reduction International, as John said. Harm Reduction International works to reduce the negative impacts of drug use and drug policy and to, to promote the rights of people who use drugs through research and advocacy. I'm glad we can start this conversation by talking about the people involved, the people at the centre of this. Um, so with that, according to UNODC, there are 271 million people around the world who use drugs. About a third of them are women. Zooming in further, we know that there's more than 15 million people around the world who inject drugs. About a third of this group are younger than 25 years of age. Approximately 21% of them have recently experienced homelessness or instable housing, and almost 60%, a staggering 60%, have a history of incarceration. So we're looking at a population with multiple levels of vulnerability. In the context of the current pandemic, people who use drugs face the same risks as the general population, but can be exposed to additional risks if they have other medical conditions, such as HIV, hepatitis, or TB. These are all common amongst people who inject drugs. Well, the settings in which they consume drugs are crowded, closed, or lack access to soap, water, and sterile equipment. On top of this, like with all markets, COVID has disrupted illicit drug markets. Changes to supply, changes to access, changes to personal contact, contacts, all change the risk factors that people encounter when they use drugs. So harm reduction services come in here. Harm reduction services play a critical role in supporting people who use drugs to make informed choices and stay healthy. Around the world, COVID has deeply impacted harm reduction services. And we see simultaneously uh, great shutdowns and restrictions, um, vast shortages in access to the appropriate PPE required to keep service providers safe. But at the same time, we see remarkable reforms and innovation. 
Standout examples including, include how the network of people who use drugs around the world have translated and disseminated information to keep the community safe as possible, to understand the implications of COVID. Um, in Switzerland, Zurich was forced to switch, shut down its three supervised consumption sites in March. Within 24 hours, it had mobilized to open an outdoor supervised consumption facility. An unexpected outcome of the pandemic is also a shift in willingness to provide methadone or other opioid treatment in the form of take-home dose. In many countries, for many people, you can access methadone only via a supervised daily dose. From Ukraine to Morocco, Nepal and India to New York, we're seeing flexibilities allowing people to take home their medicine, um, often for the first time and often for a wider group than ever before. This allows people to shelter during COVID, but also represents an interesting opening of the control paradigm of drug treatment in the medium to long term. British Columbia and Canada, who are often a leader in health-based approaches to drug use, recognize a dual public health emergency back in March. They face COVID, but they also face an overdose crisis. And they put in place measures empowering pharmacists to renew and provide extended prescriptions, including of controlled medicines like methadone, and to permit prescribers new flexibilities edging us closer to safe supply, ensuring people understand the full contents of what they're consuming. Going forward, most likely into an economic crisis, social and healthcare programs need to be pragmatic, holistic, and more person-centered than ever before to protect these vulnerable groups. I'll make one final point on the crossover between people who use drugs and people in prison and detention. The COVID prison release or decongestion strategies raise big questions about our approach to punishment and incarceration, and Kasha will speak to this further. I think it's worth pointing out that these schemes need to be supported by big picture thinking. That means thinking about the release process, downstream if you will, and thinking about what results in imprisonment in the first place, so upstream. Downstream, we're observing vast complexities at every stage of implementation of prison release schemes and ensuring the health and the safety of the individuals involved. It's worth pointing out that a number of countries are even excluding otherwise eligible prisoners from release if they can't provide a home address, like a fixed permanent address. And we've counted nine countries taking this approach. There are practical components to COVID shielding and sheltering, of course, but this is a policy which, just, which further disadvantages the most vulnerable and suggests that prison release schemes are an option only where a state can effect, effectively shrug its responsibility for an individual. This is particularly relevant for people who use drugs because I started this presentation by noting that about a fifth of all people who use drugs have experienced homelessness, inject drugs. Upstream, while governments around the world are announcing these schemes, they continue to arrest and detain citizens for drug offences. There's no point in running these amnesty schemes or decongestion schemes if there's been no upstream effort to address the issues of arrest and policing. I say this, as John said, just a week after George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. And anti-racist protesters in the US and around the world are rightly questioning state funding for punitive law enforcement when community health and social programs are in such desperate need of support. So in addition to potential for reform of prisons, there's an important discussion to be had about drug, drug policy moving away from law enforcement in the months and years to come with a view to fostering healthier, safer societies. Thanks, John. Great, we'll go now to Kasia Malinowska uh, from Open Society Foundations. Okay, we seem to momentarily lost Kasia, so um, we're going to actually just go straight on to our next speaker, which is Jason Eli uh, from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thanks, John. Um, 
the coronavirus is not a disruptor to the illicit to the to the core illicit drug industry itself, but to its operating environment. We've got to remember that historically drug organizations have had to adapt to many environmental disruptors that have challenged their operations. They've learned from these historically and become more resilient generally as a result. I guess my, my role here is to take a, a higher level look at drug, uh, the drug industry, the global drug industry uh, itself in light of COVID-19. Uh, generally speaking, cultivation and harvest of uh, coca leaves, uh, opium poppies, uh, cannabis has been at normal levels. Eradication has generally decreased as a result of uh, COVID-19 and yields in some places have even increased. Production itself, well, there have been some small blips, particularly in relation to uh, cocaine in South America, itself has also continued to to generally be unaffected. This is not a situation similar to several years ago where uh, the crops themselves have been impacted in some way. Instead, uh, we have healthy harvests, harvests coming out. Where we see some significant changes, however, are in the distribution and the flows of illicit drugs. While supply continues to flow from origin through transit points to destination, there are several points that uh, have come to light. First, we have to recognize that closed borders in those countries and those areas where borders have been closed are not really closed. We're not talking about a wall that has been put into place to stop all traffic back and forth. The borders remain permeable. While traffic has been limited in most places to commercial traffic where the borders are closed, there still is a significant amount of traffic passing through and certainly more than uh, we might realize uh, ourselves. We also have to remember that there are many borders that aren't closed. There are many parts of the world where either they haven't taken the decision to close their borders, or it's just not possible to close the border. It's not possible to police the border in its entirety. So there, there remains a strong ability of uh, drug supplies to continue to move across these borders. There's been an increase in the use of uh, air to move drugs, of course, that would be expected when uh, a majority of air traffic in the European market, North American market in particular, has been restricted. So the common route of smuggling drugs through cargo or through baggage or, or internally has become a method that is not viable uh, during the COVID times. There has, however, apparently been an increase in maritime traffic and overland traffic. Maritime in the sense that uh, we're still seeing uh, seizures occurring in shipping traffic moving in. A lot of ports are not policed to the same degree that, that air borders and airports are being policed. And there are overland transit points that are either not policed or are excluded from uh, closer scrutiny under COVID-19. For example, rail traffic in many places is excluded from the stringent uh, examination procedures that are in place in other borders. Uh, we've seen also, uh, well, a decrease in smaller loads, smaller movements uh, of, of goods. We're seeing an increase in larger volumes. So it appears that organizations are making up for the, the, the absence of many ants carrying many packages by having a larger volume going in less frequent amounts to try and, and to run the barricade, uh, as it were. 
if we look at uh, law enforcement and we look at seizures as an example, maybe, of what is happening, we can see year on year from the period January to May 2019 and January to the end of May 2020, we've seen actually globally uh, a reduction in seizures, in seizure events by about 25%. So the seizures in the same period this year have been down by about a quarter. Uh, And this is down across the three major drug types. If we look at uh, heroin, cocaine, and, and methamphetamine, cannabis is a bit more difficult because it's legal in some places and illegal uh, in others. However, if we look at the the months of March and April, which have been generally the core months of lockdown in many countries, we see a a 50% decrease in seizures. So it's it's skewed significantly to those two periods. What does that mean? Well, I think it's fair to say right now we're really not sure, but it's possible that we're looking at, because of a decrease in airflows, we're seeing a decrease in what is one of the more common methods of interdicting drug flows, uh, capturing the, the, the single smugglers or capturing cargo through air. Are we seeing distracted law enforcement? Certainly in many places. Law enforcement agencies have been used uh, to enforce COVID-19 quarantine restrictions. Their focus has changed in some places from a primary focus on interdiction to a focus on interdicting from a focus on interdicting drugs to to interdicting COVID-19 positive patients, identifying people who may or may not be be coming in illegally uh, in in that sense. We're seeing law enforcement agencies that are affected themselves by COVID-19, a reduction in numbers and increase in, in sicknesses. Are we also seeing, however, a change in flows and a change in volume of traffic? Are our drug organizations using different ways, taking different routes? Certainly, we've seen the beginnings of that in Northern Africa, uh, in uh, the Indian Ocean as well, where seizures are occurring in places where otherwise they hadn't in the past, or volume has increased to a level where it generally wasn't in the past. So I think it's fair to say that, that we're in a learning environment in this sense, but, but if uh, history is, is any lesson, it's demonstrating that the organizations are continuing to adapt, continuing to find different ways to supply their markets. Uh, finally, if, if I look at uh, destination markets, and Naomi uh, touched on this a little bit as well, generally uh, across the world, we're seeing that supply remains available in most markets. Now, in saying that it's available doesn't mean that it's accessible. And I think that's the big challenge here. In a lot of markets, particularly those where lockdowns have, have been very stringent, access by people who use drugs to the supply either the supply nodes or, or supply more generally, has been very difficult. Now, in some countries, uh, dealers have adapted to the environment by uh, camouflaging themselves in different ways or, or finding other ways to, to access their users. And users who are able, those who, are, who have a home where they can stay, who have the ability to access dark net markets and things like that, have a phone and they can order in and pay a delivery charge, they're adapting quite well. The biggest impact is, is on those users who are, who are homeless, those users who, who are also perhaps part of the drug working class in a lot of these countries, who deal and use, who, whose livelihood and the livelihood of their families perhaps uh, rely on the, the drug market economy that occurs in their country. And as that economy shrinks in some way or becomes a bit more 
a bit more rigid in its ability to, to, uh, to operate, the impact is not necessarily felt on those who are holding the drugs, supplying the drugs, transiting the drugs. The impact is felt greatly on those who, who've lost their, their, daily in, their daily income, their daily livelihood, whether they're a dealer, they're, they're a transporter, they, they store drugs. And I think, uh, I think this impact on, on livelihoods, on, on local working class, is something that is largely omitted, but something that I think is, is significant uh, as well. I'll stop there, John. Terrific. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jason. Um, I see that Kasia is back. Uh, so, Kasia, how about we go to you next, if, if that sounds good? Uh, yes, thank you, and apologies. Uh, I think my connection is not that stable, so I switched to the iPhone. I hope it works uh, well enough. Um, so, uh, thank you, John. And, and uh, my job was to speak after Naomi, and, and I think it's... Um, um, and it's important to underscore what uh, she had said to us, which is that, you know, after all, this is all about people and what happens to people in, uh, in the light of COVID. And, uh, and uh, in addition to the health um, outcomes that Naomi spoke about, um, I think one of the greatest outcomes next to uh, impact on health is what happens to people in criminal justice uh, system and how criminal justice system uh, relates to people who who use drugs, and uh, I've been following this uh, closely in the United States, really from from the beginning of the epidemic, and and you know it's 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 really a heartbreaking and heart wrenching uh, process to follow. Um, we all know United States a huge uh, incarcerator, um, particularly for uh, drug related offenses. Um, someone between 400 and half a million people in the United States are, are in prison for drug-related offenses. And obviously, impact on COVID on that community and broad prison community is huge. Uh, and so it really was no surprise to me and I think others that work in drug policy space that the first two people to die of COVID in U.S. prisons were people who were sentenced there for drug-related offenses. And, you know, and they also, uh, uh, it was Pat Mr. Patrick Jones uh, and Ms. Andrea Circle-Bear. And both of them are, uh, are showing the insanity of the system because uh, Mr. Jones has been in prison actually for quite a long uh, time and was actually due to be released at the end of this year. So imagine, imagine his family, imagine people around him, imagine Mr. Jones himself. Right, on the cusp of leaving prison uh, for a dramatic, uh, for a dramatic, uh, dramatically long um, prison sentence, uh, and not being a, a and, and dying of COVID uh, on a cusp. Uh, Miss uh, Andrea Circobert uh, was in prison for a year. Uh, uh, she died, uh, I think, a month and a half after entering prison. Uh, a young woman who uh, who was apprehended, who was brought into prison uh, while pregnant. Um, again, you know, I, I think the question that this this raises for all of us is, you know, if someone has spent two or close to three decades in prison, do they really need to be there for the last six months? Uh, which is what happened to uh, to Mr. Jones. Uh, I, I think we as society uh, could have definitely been generous and let him out as soon as the uh, as the news of uh, the epidemic emerged. And also, did we need to bring uh, Ms. Circle Bear into prison uh, as the epidemic was uh, was beginning? We already knew about that. 
she was she was a young pregnant woman with children at home so the inhumanity of uh, of uh, the prison uh, system of the prison industry and the fact that drugs play such hugely prominent role um, i think is something that we should be looking at closely and you know the, um, this this has been a question for many of us obviously in the drug policy space for for many years but covid brings this out i think uh, as powerfully as um as uh, anything else that we've been studying and learning about so uh, you know in uh, i live in the state of new jersey our um, our governor i think tried to do the right thing and actually relatively early on uh, announced release of uh, over 100 uh, prisoners some of them for drug offenses well, so it happens that most of those folks are still in prison because the bureaucracy of the system is such, the questions that are raised sort of uh, from that bureaucracy as such, that it actually w became quite difficult for people to be released. Now, the, the trouble, and I think this is what Naomi was pointing out, that if people leave, they have to, they have, to have a place to go to. There needs to be a harm reduction service for them. There needs to be a drug treatment service for them. And in my state of New Jersey, Harm reduction services are scarce at the best of times, and they're really scarce right now. So I think two folks who actually were released, who were lucky enough to be released, died of overdose within 48 uh, hours of release. So, so I think the inhumanity of the system is actually is actually quite uh, quite visible as we now look uh, look at COVID and look what happens. Uh, who are trapped in criminal justice system. Now, that, that's United States. Uh, in Latin America, uh, where prisons are operating at about 200% of the capacity, and where drugs, and, uh, 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 drugs are such a significant reason for which people end up in prison, the situation is as dramatic, if not even more dramatic. So uh, we have uh, the rates of prison inmates um, have, have grown faster uh, than the general population. And in Brazil, uh, where the prison population increased by 55%, those incarcerated for drug-related crimes increased by 267%, so, so five times higher. In Colombia, a very similar story. Uh, while the prison population recently has grown by 140%, it was uh, the number of people in prison for drugs uh, almost by 300%. So, so again, I think a question of why are we locking people up? Why are they in the first place? And what are the dramatic consequences for their lives, their families' lives in a situation like this epidemic, obviously, is something that we should be, that we should be very loud about and, and uh, speaking, about, uh, speaking about continuously. I think in Colombia, one of the prisons in Colombia, I'm probably not going to say it right, uh, Villa Vicentios, um, where where prison has become the center of uh, Colombia's COVID outbreak, uh, 900 cases of COVID were discovered, and that is seven percent of the total confirmed uh, number uh, of COVID infections in the country. So, um, so yeah, I, I think this connection of of COVID and prisons and drugs. Uh, uh, is incredibly important to to look at, and and we should be we should be very mindful about uh, about getting people out of prison, making sure that they end up uh, in uh, in services, and and I think decarceration, which we're talking about right now, is definitely not enough because what we don't want is we don't want a situation in which 
people are let out of prison temporarily or permanently. Only so, on the other end, uh, arrest continues to happen. Continue to happen. New people are brought into prison, and we sort of keep on recycling uh, folks in and out. So uh, many of us have been advocating for uh, for decriminalization of personal possession, decriminalization of uh, small scale uh, sales, of small scale production. And if there's ever a moment in time to actually make this a serious policy goal, it really is now um, uh, at the time of COVID, because it's not only about decarcerating people, but it also is making sure that they don't uh, don't end up in prison. So l- let me let me just make one other point, since I'm sitting right here in New Jersey, eight uh, eight kilometers away from Manhattan, where where people are protesting, and in my own state as well. Let me just say this, that a lot is now being said about divestment in police uh, and about uh, police brutality and so on. And, and I think that decrim, just as crucial for, um, for decarceration, is also crucial for divestment. Because when you think about how much of police time is being spent chasing people, how much time is uh, chasing drug users, arresting drug users, and actually gives them sort of weaponizes the police uh, to, to go after people of color in particular. Uh, I think if we, if we pushed hard for decrim, we would definitely impact, uh, that would definitely have an impact on divestment in police and, uh, and decarceration. And whether that is in the United States or, uh, or across the world. And just a final point that I, again, in light of the current events that I wanted to, to make is, you know, let's look at Mexico. Uh, let's look at the fact that when President Calderon brought out uh, the military from the barracks onto the streets in response to drug cartels, somehow, you know, that became, that became a new normal, that military was on the, on the streets dealing with civilians. What about Philippines, where uh, Duterte's terror against drug users also, for some people, somewhat, you know, something that they found somewhat acceptable for so-called public safety. But look what happens now. It's exactly the same tactics that are being used against general population. So I think uh, let's look at Brazil, militarized police uh, uh, in favelas. Again, the same police is now going after people uh, in in much broader sense. So so I think this, this big piece that the war on drug has brought into a criminal justice system, into how we relate to civilians, is something really important for us to look at. And and I think it's this lack of lack of outrage in the beginning um, around drugs is what contributed to the fact that those exact tools are now used uh, much more broadly in those states and, and in many others. Okay, thank you, Catherine, and thanks again to Naomi. Two, two presentations, I think, that really did reinforce um, this message in these communities that are so often hidden from these discussions. Okay, um, next up we've got uh, Gabriel Faltran, uh, speaking of Brazil, who's, uh, who, who will present on his work there. Thanks, John. Thanks uh, to the organizers. It's a pleasure to meet Alex again and to, to, to be in touch with Jason, Naomi, Cassia. Um, thanks a lot for the invitation. Well, situation in Brazil is, is very hard in many senses, but let's talk about COVID 
I prepared like three points to, to discuss with you. Uh, as Brazil has uh, a lot to do in a very strategic position in, in, in many issues now related to drugs and illegal markets uh, in the world. We've been studying, I've been studying uh, the favelas in, in Sao Paulo, so I talked specifically about Sao Paulo, but if you, if you need, after we can talk about the Brazilian situation in a more uh, broader sense. But I've been talking to my interlocutors in, in the favelas, in, especially uh, in Sao Paulo, and what we, we understood, uh, I will try to summarize in, in these three uh, points. I mean, first point is like internal market, drug market in, in, in Sao Paulo and in Brazil. Uh, second point is the international flows, especially from, uh, of cocaine that comes from Brazil to, to Africa and Europe and Middle East and other places. And third point is law enforcement, law enforcement measures here in, in, in Brazil. So one minute for each. <laughs> so like in terms of internal markets, uh, Brazil, Brazil is consuming a lot of uh, cocaine and cannabis, but cannabis normally come to Sao Paulo uh, from Paraguay and, uh, and cocaine comes from uh, Colombia, Bolivia, also Paraguay and, and Peru. So uh, cocaine uh, supply chains are much more uh, broader and they, they could cope much easier, uh, I think, uh, with the COVID crisis. As Jason said, like the, the, the dealers and, and people related to those markets, the, the, the operators are very used to, to emergency and very used to very different situations and they can cope easily uh, with this. So, for example, the cocaine never stopped to, to flow in Sao Paulo during the crisis. Even at the beginning, it became completely normal. And, and dealers in the favelas and dealers in middle classes, etc., said it was completely normal. It didn't change. So, uh, at the, at, in the retail and everyday life, it continued completely uh, untouched. The cannabis flow uh, stopped it and it had been stuck in, in, in Sao Paulo for a couple of weeks at the very beginning of the crisis. And then it suddenly appeared again. I mean, it, it, we have a lot. We had a lot of trouble in the Argentinian border and and the Paraguayan border during the, the beginning of the crisis. But it, I'm I'm sure the dealers could could cope and could find another ways and improvise uh, other routes and other ways of uh, making the drug arrive to to Sao Paulo. And it it was more or less what happened in in other places. So the internal market is mostly untouched now and if you if you look at the favelas at the retail in the popular in the workers uh, class you will see the dealers in the street using masks that's the only difference now so but everything is is completely normal now normalized again so second thing that i don't know very much it was very interesting to to hear jason's um, talk because uh, 
we we've been wondering about what what would happen with the cocaine market as the the airports were almost closed and the uh, and the ports were op, uh, operating differently so i I'm, I'm i don't have too much information on this but i know that uh, the, the the seizures increased uh, a car a quarter in 25 percent in in brazil last month i mean it it is for me it means that probably uh, the dealers had to have different arrangements and different deals to 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 ship their drugs and it was probably an opportunity to seize a bit more so but it's my hypothesis i don't know exactly what happened but i i, I heard news about portugal that was a bit lack of cocaine in portugal i'm not sure if it's completely true but i think that maybe it will be a bit more difficult to cope and to manage uh, the, the international flows of cocaine now even if we know that uh, the dealers are completely used to to emergency and the the deals to export and etc are very grassrooted and very uh, provisory uh, deals so it i i I'm, i wonder if the international flow of cocaine coming from brazil would be very affected or not but i I don't think so in, in, in some weeks. And about law enforcement, uh, the drug policies in Brazil and in Latin America are uh, horrible, as you say, so as you know. So uh, we've been like witnessing this uh, last week's a lot of uh, police killings in the favelas. I mean, it was the record since 2001 in Sao Paulo. 120 guys were killed in the favelas only in Sao Paulo state last month in April. So we have a kind of very strong polarization between Bolsonaro and the government uh, of the Sao Paulo state. And also we have a lot of uh, bases from uh, two, a lot of Bolsonaro supporters coming from the military police and civil police. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, trouble in this in, in, at this level now. And the, the type of uh, police they are enforcing is the, the, the traditional one. I mean, arresting the small scale operators of the drug market. So the, the guys who are dealing in the favelas, I mean, arresting and killing them. So it doesn't touch the market itself. So the guy is substituted the other the other day, the incarcerated one or the or the killed one. So we have a kind of a policy that is producing a lot of criminals, so-called criminals. I mean, small-scale workers of the of those markets. And during COVID crisis, as the news and the press are only talking about COVID. Uh, it's very clear for us that uh, this kind of very far right movements that are inside our police forces decided to kill more than incarcerate, especially because the, the, there's a lot of discussion of de 
de-incarceration, as Cassia uh, said. So they decide, okay, it doesn't, it's not worth to incarcerate, it's better to kill them. So in Rio and in Sao Paulo, there's a lot of uh, increase in the, in the, the killing rates of the small scale operators of the drug markets, but also the car theft markets uh, that, that we've been studying a bit more. So the situation is, is very hard now in, in, at this level because uh, it's more unprotected, I would say. Thanks, John. Okay, thanks, Gabriela. There's, there's lots there I think that we can go back into in the Q&A and in the, in the broader discussion. Um, so finally, we've got our own Alexander Soderholm. So over to you, Alex. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, Gabriel, and, and all the previous speakers and to everyone who's, who's joining us from all different parts of the world. Um, I'll speak a little bit about uh, COVID-19's impact on the Middle East in particular. Um, I'll raise a few key points firstly, and then I'll go into two themes. The first one relating to impact on, on drugs and drug users, and the second one on, on various illicit flows. And the first point I want to raise is that we still know relatively little. Um, there's most likely going to be uh, a lag before any major changes in illicit markets become visible, especially in the Middle East, which is uh, where most countries are at a relatively early stage of the pandemic. But the point I want to raise here is that any changes that we might see in drug flows will most likely disproportionately negatively affect already marginalized and vulnerable drug users and the communities that lie along the drug supply chains. And so this speaks to Jason's point about uh, livelihoods, for example, Roscash's point in terms of this is about people. Um, the Middle East, uh, most Middle Eastern countries uh, like close Afghanistan, which is, of course, the world's foremost supplier of opiates, so opium and heroin, and so purity is relatively high. However, when prices increase or purity decreases, we've consistently seen that drug-related harms intensify as users, for example, move towards more harmful modes of consumption, such as injecting drugs rather than smoking them. Um, and this is one of the impacts that COVID might have if it, if it squeezes these markets and, and changes purity and pricing, which we've seen to a limited extent in some countries like Iran. Um, the second point I want to make is that in the context of the Middle East, the informal often trumps the formal. And this is a major impact on illicit flows. And this speaks a little bit to uh, Jason's point about uh, borders being permeable. And so four decades of sanctions against Iran, also sanctions against Syria, Hezbollah, various armed groups in the region, has transformed the Middle East, wherein now a massive amount of trade is conducted informally or illegally across unofficial border crossings. And so this is something that we need to keep an eye on in relation to COVID. Now, due to the recurrent and ongoing conflict and insecurity across the region, uh, there's a large number of individuals who are vulnerable to becoming either involved with illicit economies um, as consumers of drugs or low trafficker, low level traffickers or dealers. Um, we don't know what impact COVID-19 is going to have on these conflicts and the illicit markets and flows that have taken a strong foothold in both Yemen and Syria, for example. Um, these economies already thrive in contexts of insecurity, and this is something that we will likely see continue. And this is of utmost significance to the 24 million people in need of humanitarian assistance and millions surviving on emergency food aid in Yemen alone, and the more than 6 million internally displaced persons and 130,000 detainees in regime prisons in Syria. So moving on to prisons, um, in a region where non-punitive responses are severely lacking and prisons are overcrowded, conditions are generally horrible in these penitentiary settings, um, 
we have seen some positive developments actually in countries like Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Turkey, and Yemen, where some prisoners have been released. Um, and this is really an opportunity, as, as Naomi said, to talk about both the upstream and downstream and think more holistically about, about punitiveness and incarceration. Um, and we need to think about what happens with people that we do release, as, as Kasha said. Um, one of the problems in the Middle East is that people are only released on bail um, or having a, a fixed abode, which, which many do not have. And because of the fact that drugs offences are so harshly punished in, in the Middle East in particular, um, those sentences would go over kind of the threshold of people who are being considered for release due to COVID, which is usually below a three or five year uh, incarceration uh, or, or time in prison. Um, and lastly, I want to just uh, raise a point about the secondary impacts of COVID-19 with a focus on the economy. Um, we know there's a lot of systematic research that has shown a clear link between unemployment, economic recessions and increasing drug use. Um, the global economic downturn experienced due to COVID-19 is going to have a large impact on the Middle East where countries are reliant on natural resources, such as oil. Um, but I think more importantly, it's going to have a large impact perhaps on the, um, on the many NGOs, the fantastic NGOs who operate in the Middle East in an already very unstable and difficult environment to do any drugs related work. Um, this includes organizations like Schoon and SIDC in Lebanon, Reba Society, Congress 16 Iran, who are doing some incredible work at the front line of, of the, um, of the of, of the harms related to drug use. Now, the funding of many of these NGOs is inevitably going to change and is going to be impacted by this global economic downturn, uh, which will mean lower service provision in environments where services are already very scarce. Now, I just want to pick up on two themes very briefly. Uh, and this first one is related to the vulnerable and marginalized drug users. Um, and I want to first say that it is really in times of crises when conceptions of drug users um, come to the fore. Um, preceding COVID-19, drug users have often been portrayed as a risk and threat to public health, as vectors of disease, as, as, as threats to the social order and health of urban environments. And as such, it's no surprise that Due to COVID-19, we're now hearing reports of drug users being mopped up and cleaned off the streets in, in several urban environments. Um, mostly recently, this took place last week in, in the Shush area of southern Tehran, where hundreds of individuals were, uh, were forcibly and arbitrarily detained to undergo uh, forced COVID-19 tests. Now, we still don't know what's happening with drug users testing positive, but it's been proposed that those who are positive to COVID-19 are going to first be detained in central facilities uh, before being sent to so-called so -called drug treatment camps for detoxification and rehabilitation. Now, a related issue is, uh, of course, ongoing conflict and insecurity. Um, and this research that shows that, well, in the aftermath of, of crisis is really when we might see drug use increasing and when things return to sort of a new normalcy. Um, in Iran, for example, in 2003, there was a large earthquake in Bam, which, uh, in which 20, over 26,000 people were killed. Um, and what we saw after the earthquake was that users moved towards uh, more harmful modes of consumption because of a lack of supply, shifts in the market to cope with trauma. So especially from, from smoking heroin, for example, to swallowing or injecting. Um, and this is something that we might see in the aftermath of COVID-19. Now, 
we're already seeing some of these impacts in Lebanon. Um, friends from SCOON, uh, a non-profit organization that provides drug treatment services and advocacy on behalf of drug users, they very kindly shared some preliminary data from an ongoing research project related to the impacts of COVID-19 on their beneficiaries. And the main issues reported by service users was in relation to the financial situation. So 42% of service users who had a job before COVID-19 struck um, have reported either receiving a 50% salary cut or loss of employment entirely. 47% of beneficiaries on opioid substitution therapy are having difficulty paying for the treatment. Um, and that's resulting in reduced dosages or skipping taking the medicines altogether. In terms of substance use, there's already an increase in alcohol, benzos and cannabis intake to reduce anxiety and insomnia. So we're already seeing some of these changes in terms of how um, the methods and modes of drug consumption are changing and the vulnerabilities uh, by drug users are being ex exasperated basically by the situation. Um, and I'll just very briefly, because I know I've run over time, touch upon the kind of supply chain issues of, of these list markets. Um, as mentioned previously by, by Jason and by Gabriel, I mean, these flows are already incredibly resilient and adaptive due to operating in the realm of the illegal. Um, decades of sanctions against countries in the Middle East have meant that large numbers of people have become reliant on informal or illegal trade channels to bypass sanctions and law enforcement interdiction. Um, not of all this trade is illicit goods, much of it is regular consumer goods. And what we're seeing now, some research from Afghanistan, for example, is showing that legal goods coming through these unofficial channels is increasing when the borders are closing. And again, prices on uh, of labor in Afghanistan in terms of opium production uh, is stable, the harvest is not producing, and so on and so forth. So there's some stability in terms of the resilience of these flows, and actually they might increase uh, because of the COVID situation, because we have more legal goods flowing through these channels. The main question, per question perhaps is how is this going to affect the region's ongoing conflicts? Um, now we know existing vulnerabilities, already fragile health systems, limited availability of medical supplies makes uh, COVID-19 a bigger risk to public health and conflict zones. Health workers have already been targeted in the conflicts of Syria and Yemen. There are large numbers of refugees and IDPs in the region. Um, and what we know in terms of Syria and Yemen in particular is that organized crime groups and armed groups have already exploited these conflicts um, to establish lucrative illicit economies. And that's the trafficking of antiquities, drugs and oil in Syria, for example, or arms and drugs in Yemen, and so on and so forth. I think we can expect these issues to become further protracted and entrenched due to COVID, rather than seeing any massive disruption to these illicit economies, as they already thrive in these contexts. Um, and so COVID might really pose opportunities rather than constraints to some of these armed and, and organized crime groups. Um, with that, I'll hand back to the chair. Thank you. Super. Thanks, Alex. It's very interesting points. And it, it really is remarkable to see these kind of common threads emerging across very different geographies and, and, and thematic areas. Um, I see we've got some great questions already. Uh, I would encourage people to submit your Q&A by clicking on the Q&A at the bottom of the screen. Um, but maybe just to kick things off, I'll, I'll use the chair's prerogative and I'd like to, to pose two questions to everybody and you can, you can focus on one more than others. And I'd, I'd ask, I know some people have started to address them, so, so you can try keep them brief. But the first one would be, um, what would you think are the long-term effects of COVID on illicit markets or drug markets or, or, or policy towards, say, people who use drugs? Um, and number two, what can and should policymakers do right now? What is the immediate thing that you would like to see to address this? So we'll go, go back in order. So we'll start with Naomi. 
Fabulous. I love going first. Um, I'm going to go with what policymakers uh, should do right now. Um, I think going to going to the kind of the point at the top of, of uh, the agenda and something that's been on everyone's mind with the protests in the US, um, the the deeply kind of entrenched um, nature of, of drug law enforcement and racism and, and how it impacts most on, on the poorest in society. I think policymakers can use this crisis situation to make sure they're putting their funding in the right place um, to fund the social and, and, and health and policy program social and health programs, um, they're going to kind of inch us forward um, in terms of creating uh, in societies where people have somewhere to stay at night, where people have enough food, you know, above all of these things, you know, I spoke to harm reduction services, but what we see all across sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe and Asia, people are lacking basic necessities during this period. Um, you know, poverty is, is only going to get worse with, with the a pending economic crisis. Um, we really need states to come in and make, you know, make the political commitment in the form of funding um, to provide like basic social and health services to ensure people can stay safe um, and have somewhere to live. Great, Kashin, I think people can just jump in as, uh, as, as they like. So, so I, I, I will, I guess, repeat uh, the points that I, that I made earlier, uh, but let me just give it a slightly different context. So I, I do think that now is the moment to advocate powerfully by all of us for decriminalization and by policymakers to actually hear that call. And here is, and here's why I think it's important. You know, in the drug policy space in the United States, no, sorry, in criminal justice space in the United States, um, very often I hear the following statement, that if we deal with criminal justice overall, we will also address the needs of people who are there for drug-related offenses. I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's true for a number of reasons. One, because some people do think that the war on drugs should be gentler and kinder. And so they came up with the idea of drug courts. And we all know what that means in practice. I know that some people are arguing, okay, so let's maybe uh, put in place diversion programs where people will not end up in jail, but they still are um, subject of uh, dramatic uh, police interaction. And as Naomi pointed out, that is also often racist and, uh, and very uneven. So I think this assumption that criminal justice reform will take care of drug users and, 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 and drug-related um, drug um, sort of so, uh, criminal justice I, I'm not finding to be the case. I think we need to be as straightforward as possible and basically say that we need to remove police from interactions with people who are, um, who are charged for uh, particularly nonviolent and small uh, drug offenses. So, so I think that that is one, uh, that is one uh, important issue to, uh, to um, highlight now more than ever. And then on the um, divesting, police divesting, again, you know, if there's, if there's no law that clearly limits police interaction with people uh, who use drugs, even if you divest in the police, even if their budgets are a lot smaller, even if, uh, even if the number of police is a lot smaller, I'm pretty certain that drug users 
will still will be the people that they go after. And so I think that this needs to happen on both fronts. It needs to happen on a broader criminal justice front, on broader, in a broader context of divesting from police. But law on the books has to follow uh, because otherwise uh, those systems are so experienced and so talented in using drugs and they've been so uh, weaponized with drug laws to go after most vulnerable that this will simply continue. So I would say that, again, more now more than ever, decrim needs to be a priority for policymakers and all of us advocating on, on drug policy front. So Jason's next. Uh, sure. Um, I guess I'll tackle the first question, uh, John. And I would say two things. Um, first, I, I think there needs to be concern over the potential permanence of the role that law enforcement has taken in many countries in terms of increased securitization and militarization of uh, environmental control. This includes uh, some of the attacks on, on users that have, that have, have been raised uh, by, by Kaja and Naomi. Um, but more broadly, it's, it's, an, it's a maintenance and an intensification of an approach by law enforcement to drug markets that really hasn't proved effective over the last, you could say, 30 years of the UN grand program to respond to drugs or the last 100 years of prohibition in and of itself. Uh, we need to find a different way of policing, uh, of, of law enforcement uh, organization around uh, drug markets because the current approach just isn't effective by many different ways of measuring it. The second thing is, I think we have to recognize that in many countries, the economic impact of COVID-19 is going to be, in many ways, far more significant and far more impactive than the ongoing public health impact. What I mean here from the point of view of, of uh, drug organizations is that there are many countries that were already vulnerable and fragile from an economic perspective. And the, the impact of going through COVID-19 and, and the, the shrinking of the global economy, um, the correlated shrinking of national economies is going to leave many of these countries quite vulnerable economically, uh, entering into recessionary cycles that may be for an, expended, an extended period of time. And the fear here uh, I have is the vulnerability that these, these countries and their governance structures and institutions will be to infiltration by drug organizations and uh, organized uh, criminal elements. Uh, we've seen it already in, in several countries uh, in the past, but I think going forward, this is gonna be a real threat uh, uh, in many places of the world where um, governance institutions are, are going to have to, we're gonna have to find a way to make them more resilient to, to being taken over uh, and fending, uh, fending for the interests of uh, organized crime. Okay, so it's a number of small tasks there, nothing else particularly major, right? Um, okay, and next up we've got Gabriel. So I think that, uh, in Brazil we are experiencing last week's uh, protests for democracy. Like we are in a very basic position now. Like our democracy is doesn't exist anymore uh, in in actual terms. 
and we it means uh, that our population is not considered by the government uh, as a whole uh, an entire population or a, a political community i would say this uh, population is divided by government and by political measures in two poles one pole is considered to be uh, the, the the good citizen the other pole is is considered to be the thief or the 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 criminal and drugs are completely connected to this sense of being a criminal now in in our country so i do agree that we we have to struggle now for, for decriminalizing but it means a lot of things in brazil not only the drug use but also the 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 political action the opposition the the poor uh, people struggle for life and etc so i mean there's and i i think illegal markets play a crucial role in 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 the mechanism the most important and most significant mechanism in brazil now um to 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 criminalize people and i and i mean for example things that i'm saying here could be used to say no this guy is defending or this guy is uh, supporting criminals supporting criminal uh markets i mean supporting um the the way people think about drugs and etc or or liberty or freedom for example let let's let's just to talk about one example our government said uh, talking about incarceration and etc there's a lot of movements human rights movements uh, acting exactly in the way cassia was uh, telling before i mean decarceration saying it it would be uh, like catastrophic in the in the jail and etc in the prisons so uh, the, the criminals i mean people who are arrested now must have the support of the government and their families and etc with some money or cash transfer and etc and the government responded saying okay no the good citizens will have this support and they actually they act uh, actively to avoid like the, the family of arrested people to have this benefit to have the cash transfer so we have now uh, now our my way of understanding this that we, for the government we are in a war that's why we have a military police acting as it is acting now i mean we are we have a, a, a war against part of the so-called citizenship that for them are enemies and the criminalization the illicit markets the drug markets and etc are a clear cut in 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 this political uh, strategy or struggle so they are really uh, trying to find some relation with drugs or to any uh, small illicit act to say okay we have an essential criminal here so i i do agree that we have to act on this but we have to be careful as well that 
if we talk about drugs in this moment, it will be understood by the, the, the other side as something that is criminal. It's not something that is a health issue or something related to individual freedom or to nothing like that. It's something related to crime. And as they say, we don't talk with criminals. We, we tackle, tackle them. So that's our situation here, just to, to understand how, how strong is, is the problem now. Perfect. Okay. And finally, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, just um, firstly building on the, the point raised by, by Jason, really echoing that in terms of the exploitation of state vulnerability and capacity. It, it's how, I mean, West Africa in a very short period of time turned into one of the main cocaine transiting hubs to, to Europe from South America uh, by organized crime groups, transnational drug trafficking organizations, exploiting those vulnerabilities in the state. Um, and if we talk about the Middle East in particular, what is going to come out or what, what the region is going to look like after this huge global financial downturn um, is, is going to pose serious opportunities to, to various criminal groups. Um, and they're definitely going to exploit those opportunities for their own winnings. Um, in terms of the points raised by Naomi and Kasha, I think it's incredibly important uh, that we talk about decriminalization changes to laws and i think as part of that it's really important that we um never make decriminalization contingent on mandatory treatment as we've seen in some countries um whereby as long as you you have some sort of some sort of treatment certificate or you're enrolled in some harm reduction program sure then you might be let off the hook um because what inevitably will happen and has happened in many countries in particular it's ongoing in iran is that the police still plays such an important role in terms of forcibly bringing drug users the most vulnerable and marginalized drug users who are on the streets of urban places um into these treatment centers into these so-called camps or compulsory drug detention centers uh for months on end and where drug users essentially become commodities in a newly formed economy whereby they're they're sold between different treatment centers or between different uh, drug uh, detention camps, basically, um, because these organizations can generate revenue by, by treating drug users. Um, and so decriminalization should be in itself uh, something, and it shouldn't be contingent on, on, on mandatory treatment or anything like that. It's just what I wanted to raise. Okay, excellent. So we have a, a good number of questions and answers. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go out over a few, and I think people can just pick which ones that they'd like to address. And um, the first one is actually two people did it. So it's Harry Shapiro, director of Drugwise, and forgive me, just let me pull up the other's name. It's Anya Agarwal, and the the question effectively centers on the shift to synthetics, right? That we we we've been talking about it pre-crisis, but whether you know, traditionally pre produced drugs like opium, uh, heroin, um, and, and, and cocaine or co uh, coca were, would be supplanted by synthetic drugs. And are, are we seeing uh, COVID basically expediting that process or do we see no evidence of that occurring? So it would just be interesting to get people's thoughts and maybe it's too early to tell on this. Let me pull up another one. So, um, uh, Luton Sinfield, Community Safety Officer from Southern Council in London. Um, how has the consequences of COVID-19 lockdown impacted on local distribution patterns in London? Uh, Naomi, I suspect you should be well, you might be able to speak to this. Uh, we hear there is less visible individuals are being recruited and exploited. Are they likely to be stopped? I'm not quite clear on what that means. But they're just saying anecdotally they hear that 
there's, there's a varying effect on, on populations in London about who's being involved in the drug markets going forward. So maybe we can just stick with the fentanyl and synthetics and, and maybe this impact on local communities as well. So who'd like to go first? Okay, I'll, I'll jump in since we're, uh, since we're going, <laughs> got the pattern. Um, I think the, the question that Harry posed um, and Anya, I believe, uh, about the kind of the role of fentanyl in the market is a really interesting one. I know that when, when we look at kind of the, the concentration of, of substances, a lot of people refer back to prohibition in the US in the 20s, uh, where it's a really good example of where you need to hide something, the smaller and more concentrated it is, the easier it is. I think um, the the count and the synthetics point, obviously, you know, even before COVID, we need to really think about the difference between producing drugs um, in a basement or a backyard somewhere versus the cost of shipping them. And that's going to be a big factor for markets all over the world. I think the counterpoint is always important to remember, you know, drug use and drug taking is not a mindless activity. It's an inherently human behavior. People don't just take drugs because they're offered to them. People have the drugs that they choose to take. You know, people choose drugs because it makes them feel a specific way. So moving from an opioid to fentanyl is not everybody's choice of drugs. So I don't think, I don't think we can say automatically that people are going to kind of slip along a stream or, or make choices simply because it's more available. Because choosing drugs is inherently about what you want the drug to do for you. That's a person-centered choice as opposed to uh, being driven by the market. Um, on London... Um, I think that that question is probably it's probably a little bit difficult to answer at the moment. I know that uh, Release, the National Centre for Drug Policy in the UK, is doing some really interesting uh, surveys. Um, they've got a drug survey out there. And they're tracking changes to the drug markets and the experiences of people who use drugs on a weekly basis. We know that um, with very few people permitted to be out on the streets with lockdown, um, all kind of street-based begging, access to kind of, you know, even, even petty theft is almost impossible when you're the only one in a small shop. Um, we know that there's a, a vast reduction in funds available, available to purchase drugs, and that's kind of creating some ripples and some shifts in terms of people's choice of drugs um, and how they participate in the market. As we see opening up in London last week and this week, um, that's going to shift a little bit as well. But I encourage everybody to look out for the results of uh, the release research. So, John, if, if, you, if you allow me, I, I wanted to raise one point, which I think will be significant as we move forward. And it, has, it does not have to do with the choices that people make in urban centers as, uh, as, or, or on the buyer side, as, as Naomi explained. But it's about people who produce we are heading into a major, major uh, global recession. Um, I think we really need to keep in mind that for many people in Myanmar, in the Andes, uh, across Latin America, in Afghanistan, production of the traditional drugs, be it coca, uh, cocaine, coca leaf for cocaine, or opium, or cannabis, is a way to survive, is, to, is a way to put food on the table. So, and then you have the large drug industry, which obviously will, uh, will find its place uh, in the market. And for them, the question of fentanyl or, or opium is probably less pertinent because at the end of the day, it will be about making large amounts of money. But I think people who are transporting coca paste uh, people who are small, um, 
small actors in the drug industry will also have something to say about this because this is their livelihood. And so I do wonder whether the fact that we're heading into a recession is not an opportunity to have a conversation about legitimizing some of their work and uh, finding a way for some of the coca, uh, coca growers to produce a product that we will be able to benefit from in ways that are other than cocaine or maybe, uh, 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 maybe pharmaceutical um, uh, cocaine. So I, would, uh, I think this also is an opportunity to ask those questions because we are talking about hundreds of thousands of impoverished, already very impoverished families that are heading into even greater economic uh, struggle. And so how do those dots connect uh, between, uh, between you know, the Andes or, or London, and how does that become, uh, how does that impact an overall global market is not a question that I'm uh, able to speak about. But I do want to point out that there are hundreds and thousands of people that are reliant for subsistence allowance um, uh, on, 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 those, uh, on that production and we can't just ignore it um, and assume that they can just be replaced. If I may add to that as well, I think if, if we look at what the economic situation is, we're in, there's certain parts of the world that are in a very severe recession. There's certain parts of the world that are actively in a depression. We could say the air travel industry is in a depression. Uh, commodities are in a depression. So the idea that these communities, which are completely reliant on illicit commodities, uh, will move into a commodity sector or illicit commodity sector that is severely depressed prices is, 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 is not realistic. So I think that's exactly as Kasia says, we have to be realistic about what policies we're putting forward uh, to assist these communities. Okay, um, that's just my thought. Uh, Jason, do you want to jump in? Sure. Um, I think uh, uh, the question of Harry and Anya, is it? Is COVID-19 uh, affecting or, or assisting a shift towards synthetics? I would say that, that um, we've been seeing a shift towards synthetics actually more broadly uh, uh, even before COVID-19. I think if we look at, at the global situation, when we talk about synthetics and let's go beyond fentanyl and, and its, uh, its analogs, let's also look at precursors that are used to produce methamphetamine and amphetamine and MDMA and, and, all of, and uh, synthetic uh, cannabinoids. If we look at this, uh, we know first that the two single largest suppliers of precursor chemicals and, and synthetics that are necessary for the synthetic drug industry are, are the pharmaceutical industries, chemical industries, in both China and India. So the vast majority of chemicals that are found in illicit production sites around the world generally come from these, these, uh, these two points of origin, with, with several exceptions, of course, uh, uh, in, in, in other areas, but, but, but we know this uh, for certain. Secondly, um, we've seen uh, significant seizures of synthetics and precursors uh, more recently in, in volumes and in places where previously they didn't occur. So in December, we saw for the first time a Dow that was seized off the coast of Mozambique that had hundreds of kilograms of methamphetamine on it, in addition to its, its ton or ton and a half of heroin, which is unusual. This is, these are, uh, 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 this is a location where generally the supply had, had been domestic. Um, to the region coming from South Africa to Mozambique, but all of a sudden um, uh, 
this seizure occurred. Secondly, there was a seizure in Myanmar earlier this year, which uh, was which was described as the single largest seizure of uh, methamphetamine and precursors ever in the Asian region. Remember that the most common drug of use uh, across East Asia is methamphetamine uh, in, I think, every country but perhaps one. The volume uh, seized and the volume that's generally estimated to be produced in the billions of pills, um, is, is this just for the East Asian market or are large quantities of, of these drugs being moved to other markets around the world? I think if we look at uh, uh, the markets beyond just just the, the the fentanyls and look into the synthetic cannabinoids, we look at the Indian Ocean states, we look at uh, the rise of the dark net as, as another means of, uh, of channeling these drugs. And I think we, we we're in a situation where synthetics are becoming more available in markets. Are people turning to using them? I think that's that's a bigger question, and and I think Kasia and Naomi have have addressed that to some degree. But I certainly think, from the point of view of a commodity, synthetics are becoming more common around the world, and will continue perhaps to become more common because, of course, they're more efficiently more efficient to produce, and uh, uh, and easier to move around. Okay, Gabriel. Gabriel. So I think if we think about the, the cocaine supply chain coming from, from Colombia and Bolivia and Peru, passing through Brazil, going to Europe, um, it's about $1 a grain in Colombia. You can buy cocaine for $1 a grain. And in, in London, it, will, it would cost 100 So in Brazil now, the, the economic crisis is very tough, and at the same time, the the real is devaluating. So before Bolsonaro, it was about four reais, one dollar. Now it's about six. So if the cost of cocaine is increasing in London with the COVID, it will certainly push the Brazilian dealers to export more than to sell it internally. So, of course, it's much more uh, value if you export something in this moment than if you um, sell it internally. So we are we are discussing this kind this kind of shift here because uh, ten years ago it was not so strong the exportation in uh, from São Paulo at least and from Fortaleza and from other places. But it was already a tendency to have exportation, exportation of cocaine uh, passing through Brazil and going to African Europe. And with the, with the economic crisis, with the COVID crisis, we see now, we, we are wondering about it. It's much more, for, uh, much more, uh, um, it's, it's, it's worth to, to, to export men, more than to to sell it internally so this could also be a a, a consequence of this month of uh, of this year of crisis for the cocaine market and uh, in in terms of other illicit markets we could see other shifts as well like car theft markets in brazil are, are were already experiencing a kind of prof professional tendency 
and more thefts than robberies, uh, like reaching the, the, what happens in, in more developed countries. So uh, during COVID crisis, we saw it more, most intensively as well. So I think there will be a shift, but in, 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 in the same direction, the same tendencies we could uh, recognize before. And in this sense, uh, the, the, the COVID crisis would be a kind of accelerator of those uh, changes by economic reasons and by uh, political uh, reasons as well. Right. And Alex? Yeah, thanks, John. Just building on, on Jason and, and Gabriel's points, um, I mean, between 2009 and 2016, about 106 countries and territories reported the emergence of 739 different new psychoactive substances to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. The last decade has been exceptional in terms of the rise of, of these synthetic substances. Um, but 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 this precedes this last decade. I mean, in the year two thousand, when uh, when when the Taliban banned opium production in Afghanistan, we saw the emergence of heroin kirak in Iran, which is a form of crystallized heroin, um, due to that shortage of of of, of regular opium heroin to the market to the Iranian market. Um, organized crime adapts these groups. They adapt. They're flexible. They come up with new modes of transportation, they come up with new substances to increase the price to value ratio. Um, is it likely that we'll see the emergence of new substances post COVID-19? I'd say so, absolutely. Um, the, the, the world has changed <laughs> as we know it. Um, and why should not these groups who have already uh, exploited the vulnerabilities of the system as it is, um, not exploit these new vulnerabilities um, and capitalize on them? So I think we're going to see many changes moving forward. Um, time will tell. Great. Uh, so while we have 10 minutes left, I'm going to go through and try to assign a couple of questions. So we have some, some quite interesting ones. Um, there was one from a prospective LSE student. Uh, I think it has disappeared now. But uh, they were asking effectively about what uh, I think Kasia answered in the last question. It's uh, Sunny Singh. So I believe we had Kasia already answered your question on that front. Um, Gabrielle, uh, we have Evelyn Guevara from Peru. Uh, she's, effect she's asking, uh, how, how do communities, you know, this I think comes to a community resilience question. Uh, how do communities work to insulate themselves from these criminal elements, from predatory criminal elements, perhaps we could describe it, uh, and, and more empower themselves to really manage their own, their own security issues and their own health issues uh, in these times? Um, Jason, we have Anna Sergi from... Um, uh, and I know Ewan has also been asking, Ewan Grant has also been asking more or less this question, but Anna Sergei, who's a senior lecturer in criminology at Essex University, um, she suggested the strategic choices of drug trafficking organizations are less conscious uh, than they usually might be, and that the port economy has been ad ad adapting to the challenges of COVID um, uh, by also uh, fragmenting shipping routes and, and, and redirecting cargo. And, uh, cargo. and I, I, I gather what she's suggesting is maybe this is just a byproduct of broader changes in international trading patterns. Um, Tony Duffin, hello to Tony and the team at Anna Liffey Drug Project. They're one of the groups that we mentioned at the start as you know, frontline harm reduction service providers doing really outstanding work at this time. Um, he was just saying, similar to Gabrielle's narrative on Brazil, Ireland has seen no known impact on supply. As I said, this is a service provider who works with homeless populations, with groups, and so they would have good, good, good indications on this. 
Um, there has continues to be high-profile drug seizures reported in the media. Um, there has been changes in drug trends, but these appear to be based upon drug dealers responding to the, responding to the situation. For example, more crack cocaine rather than powder cocaine. Uh, he's, he's asking, are there any uh, indications of droughts uh, specific perhaps to the pandemic? So that's sort of to everyone, perhaps Alex, perhaps Gabriel, you, you, you could speak to that question. Um, Kasia and Naomi, we had one which uh, was about housing first. So effectively this point of, you know, does this, uh, we've seen it in some of the responses, some of the particularly European responses to COVID is putting other issues aside and, and focusing more on, on getting people housed, not in all cases, but I think in some. And I think the question is, like, I can't uh, pull it up right now, but I think the question was effectively saying, does this not show the importance of this kind of policy um, going forward. So I think that's that might be enough for the moment. Apologies to everyone else's question I didn't get to, but maybe we can just go on those. So let's start again with Naomi. Let's just do the, the same order. Okay. Okay, great. Um, housing first. Uh, so I think I think we're at an interesting point at observing where housing initiatives and COVID um, are playing out for people who use drugs. Uh, we do see uh, across across middle income and high income countries like a surge of, of new interest um, and support for housing programs, getting people off the street um, and, and largely consent based. I think um, from a preliminary monitoring of this area, we're not seeing like vast kind of swaths of exclusion of people who use drugs in this space, uh, noting that normally this is a really contentious issue and a lot of people who use drugs are excluded from shelters or from temporary housing. I think the big challenge is lying ahead. The big challenge is what will happen when the government stops paying for hotels in city centres to house people who are street-based? Um, you know, how, how do we support people to kind of retain some sense of stability and safety and, and a place to live? And I think um, there, there is an example, Athens right now has, has stormed ahead in a kind of across a city council, NGO um drug agency kind of initiative and they've got and they've got a shelter set up that's providing long-term housing for men and women who use drugs in the city. Um, and I think that that's the type of thinking we need. We need to be thinking about long-term solutions, not like temporary COVID solutions and that shelter specifically uh, for people who use drugs uh, with, with, like, with unique needs. I think broadly, because I think we're, we're, we're heading towards our, our end point, I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, Going into this crisis and going out of it, uh, drug control will be a mechanism that's really convenient for politicians. You know, this the securitization, the police on the street, the investment in in punitive drug control. We know that over a hundred billion US dollars is spent on on punitive drug control annually, which absolutely dwarfs anything spent on community and health systems and support. Um, and we really need to dismantle that and deconstruct all of our presumptions as to what we need the state to do what we need the state to provide in terms of policing and security. And that will underpin any steps towards decriminalization. Um, and I think, I think we see that in all of our actions. Even some of the prison release schemes specifically exclude drug, drug crimes. Like drug policy is the ultimate example of exceptionalism. It's something you can always pull out and say everything but this. I think in order to really make progress moving forward, we really need to dismantle that and attack it and make sure it's no longer true. Thanks. Super. And Kasha? So, so again, I'm not sure how much of a direct answer to one of the questions this is, but, but there was a question about how community can sort of, you know, 
boost their own resilience and make sure that they're less vulnerable. So, so I, I would say that in, in my view, particularly when I think about the communities I mentioned earlier, which are growers, which are uh, engaged in small scale uh, drug production, you know, they are in that position because of lack of state because of lack of investment, you know, whether you, again, look at the hills of uh, mountains of Myanmar or whether you look at the Andes or whether you look at Afghanistan, this is where the state is not present. And so people are basically doing the best they can to survive under incredibly difficult set of circumstances. So I, I, I would say that in those particular uh, um, examples, we really need the state to Engage because uh, because I think expecting that they can they can um, sort of master um, all that's whirling around them uh, and now uh, as you pointed out John um, the, the potentially a huge economic depression I, I think is not it's just not reasonable I think we need that we need positive state presence uh, in those areas so people actually have choices. Um, and, and, you know, maybe this will be a wake up moment. Um, and, and I hope, I hope it will. So they do not have to fend for themselves, but there will be someone else in a positive way, um, helping them, uh, come up with a strategy that, uh, that actually potentially reduces engagement in, um, uh, in drug production and and allows them to um, to expand in illicit economies. Great, thank you, Kasha. And then, so let's, uh, Jason. Uh, thanks, John. Um, I'm not sure I completely understand the question, but if it's if it's around the ability of law enforcement to adapt alongside the adaptations taken by drug organizations, maybe. I'll tackle it. I, I may have understood, misunderstood it, but my understanding was that drug organizations are basically piggybacking on commodity, uh, global trade changes anyway. So shipping oh, yeah, yeah. changed. And so that's, that explains some of the shift. That's how I read it. Yeah, I, um, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, illicit markets as a whole uh, uh, benefit from illicit markets and high volumes of uh, illicit trade are uh, make up uh, or transit the corridors where illicit markets uh, travel. Um, the flexibility of, of illicit trade as well allows it to go outside of those channels, um, particularly where the, the, the risk of, of interdiction or the risk of detection is, is lower vis-a-vis -vis the, the illicit channels. So the, the formal ports of entry, if, uh, if they've become a bit more stringent, if uh, uh, a, a port, for example, is, is used where uh, is particularly uh, valuable when it's been infiltrated by organized crime or they've corrupted an agent in the port or the port itself lacks uh, basic security and, and it's a great way to, to move drugs in. But if, if those conditions change, then uh, um, these, these flows can, can quite easily move to other channels, uh, become informal entry off the coast using smaller boats or, or, or different ways. So I think, um, I think yes, absolutely 100%. Um, as licit flows change, illicit flows will continue to take advantage of that. And historically, they've always done that. Um, but I think uh, the ability of, of illicit, organi uh, illicit drug organizations to adapt is perhaps, they're, they're a bit faster than, than law enforcement agents are able to, to mirror them in this cat and mouse struggle of, of, uh, of interdiction. Uh, I hope I got it. 
Perfect. Um, I'm not sure what happens when we get over time, but we are over time. So, uh, Gabrielle and Alex, assuming we still have an audience, if you want to give a quick response. Yeah, no, I completely agree with Jason and also with uh, Cassia that the, the criminalization of, of those markets are very important to, to produce inequalities only. I mean, violence is mostly uh, focused in, in the basis of those uh, uh, markets. In middle classes in Brazil, there's a lot of drug trade. It's not repressed at all, and it's not violent at all. So there's a lot of drug trade in London that is non-violent drug trade at all. But of course, there's a lot of repression in the favelas in Sao Paulo, and we are talking about the same supply chain. So this, uh, uh, I think criminalization is a part of it. It's not the only thing we have to, to, to think about, but it is a huge part of it. And that is what is tricky about the community level solutions because they are already criminalized from outside. So I think for the communities, as the, the question asked, I think it's more about connecting with another movement and trying to reinforce a public debate on, on, on what's going on and, and, and on inequalities. That's, that's how we, we try to, to frame things uh, here, I think. Uh, Drug dealing is part of an inequalities problem that is global, but also internal. And we, we had a lot of talk about that, but we have not, no time to do this. But it was nice to, to listen to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And Alex, last word? Yeah, so thanks a lot for the question. Tony often asked the question about shortages. Um, in it, haven't heard much about it in the in the Middle East, except for certain perhaps times and certain substances, but not overall as a whole. A couple of weeks ago, all of a sudden, prices on um, opium and heroin doubled or even trebled in in Iran. Uh, but that was the result of opportunistic traders rather than a, a change in the market. Um, and it came very shortly after certain border points uh, along the Iranian Afghanistan border were closed. Um, but the prices changed so quickly that it couldn't have been because of that. It was more kind of a psychological over the border is closing, so now we can actually make more money off of these drugs. Um, and then just echoing the previous points that have been made in relation to criminalization, it really creates a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, whether you're a, a farmer in Afghanistan or you're an ethnic minority in the borderlands or you're a street dealer in, in London, that uh, militarized criminalization that's very disproportionately targeted uh, against certain social groups um, creates further marginalization, which then makes people more reliant on, on these informal and illicit markets. And it's something that has to end. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Okay, we are over time, but just to say thank you to all of our speakers. Um, really, really fantastic and interesting discussions. Um, this is not the last of these we, we will have, I'm sure, but it is the first, and I, I'm, I'm really delighted that the, how it's gone. Um, just to say another thank you to LSC Events, and also in particular thank you to the audience for joining us and, and for the great questions. Um, check out all of the organizations represented here. Check out the LSE Journal of Illicit Economies and Development, which Jason's orga organization is also a partner on. The, um, it, it's freely available online, so I'd encourage everyone to have a look. Um, other than that, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, John.